Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Jules Osbeck, Head of Sales and Marketing at Continuum Attractions. We discuss their marketing approach for attractions during a time of capped capacity and their approach to marketing segmentation that's not driven by demographics. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Jules, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's lovely to have you with us. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. I always start off these podcast interviews with a few little icebreaker questions because we haven't spoken before and I mm. think it's quite nice to just get to know the real you. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So first one, um, where is the worst place you could get stuck? Oh, the tube at rush hour. Yeah. Are you, like, how tall are you as well? Because I'm I have five that, foot two. Yeah, me too. I'm five, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm five two and a half because that half makes a difference. But I'm at armpit height as well. Exactly. Oh, it's the worst. And, and, it? And, 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 and I suffer a little bit of claustrophobia. So being on the tube under people's armpits at rush hour. Uh, yeah, worst nightmare. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm totally with you on that one. Okay. Um, what is your favourite movie quote? Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Um, the one that springs to mind first is don't put baby in the corner. But I think that's because <laughs> I was a baby dirty dancing fan as a teenager. Who isn't? I mean, still am. And, and I'd hate to be put in the corner myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great answer. I mean, I'm an 80s film fan as well. So that really Definitely. hits the spot with me. You can't beat Dirty Dancing and Top Gun are two of my all-time yes. favourite movies. My quote is a Top Gun quote. <laughs> Absolutely would have been a Top Gun quote. All right. So this is this is the last icebreaker question, but it's always my favourite one. So can you tell me something that's true to you that almost nobody agrees with you on? So like, what is your unpopular opinion? Oh, gosh. That's a really hard one. Um breakfast food is the best and could be eaten at every meal time Ooh, yeah what are we talking are we talking continental um, no 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 no. I mean continental is great because who doesn't love a pan of chocolate mm. but I'm talking like pancakes like you can have pancakes for lunch quite easily uh you can make a mid-meal out of breakfast which is brunch and who doesn't love brunch because you can also have a mimosa with brunch um, <laughs> <laughs> you are my kind of woman Jules. <laughs> yeah bacon sandwich blt i mean you can eat that stuff any time of the day so if i had to pick one meal time to eat for the rest of my life it would be breakfast I love and this. all its glory <laughs> I love this. and with the mimosas thrown in as well it's yeah. a perfect combination great thank you <laughs> anyway moving on so yeah. Jules tell us a little bit I mean can you tell us what your your background has been in the attractions world and how you've come to work with Continuum sure so I started my career in event management um, for Northumbria University where I was studying for my master's which opened a lot of doors to me I had a great experience and then went on to work for a business called Northern Film and Media, who were the regional screen agency for the north of England. Um, and I was their events manager. So really kind of early doors was all about the guest experience and quality. 
I sold my soul and went corporate for a period of time. I worked for a company that delivered the business link service before the Conservative government came in. Massive oh, wow. spending review was made redundant um, and did some other various bits and pieces before going to work for the National Railway Museum in York, um, uh, which I fell in love with. Um, I really enjoy working with people that are leaders in their fields and are passionate and love what they do and steam train enthusiasts really do fit into that sphere yeah. um, so <laughs> had a great time working for them and then um, I went on to um, work for English Heritage some God, eight or nine years ago now at a time where English Heritage were going through quite a big restructure again off the back of government spending and also they were looking at their brand and and how their brand was perceived in the world and it was you know, very clear that at that point in time it was perceived as very male very tweed very old-fashioned academic and stuffy and where they wanted to be was in the family arena of fun engaging enriching so they were about to embark on this journey of moving um, the English heritage brand from where it was forward so a really exciting time I also walked into a marketing department that was non-existent in the York office in the north of England. Um, so I went about, I found cassettes from the 80s with like radio campaigns and things. I was Whoa. like, wow, yeah. <laughs> um, so I had a great time there, built a brilliant team around me, worked for a really, really great lady called Elizabeth Page, who I got on very well with, was a great mentor. And we had a portfolio of 38 sites historic everything from stately houses to castles to bits of rock in the middle of fields um, and also uh hadrian's wall some 73 miles of world unesco world heritage sites so a, an amazing portfolio to work with with a great team and we grew the commercial side of the business quite exponentially actually over the four or five years that i was there um so really great time to be involved in that and then I was kind of wrenched away because I loved it so much, but I knew I'd hit that kind of glass ceiling and couldn't do any more. Mm. Um, so I took the leap into continue attractions where I am today. Um, quite a big culture shock, I think it's fair to say, to go from working for very historic, very authoritative, very um, academic English heritage with huge, you know, brand values that stand behind it to a really nimble commercial organization of a diverse portfolio, eclectic mix of attractions spread across the UK. But uh, I'm still here some four years later. So uh, I'm clearly enjoying <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, work with some really great people. Our chief exec, Juliana, has been in this business for 35 years. And I've got a really great team of sales and marketing professionals within the business as well. So yeah, here I am. And you say about eclectic and, and it really is, isn't it? I mean, you've got, you know, multiple attractions. They're all extremely different. I mean, we go from the York Chocolate Shop, which you yeah. know, we've all been to, which we love. Um, Oxford Castle and Prison, the Emmerdale Studio Experience, and then the Emirates Spinnaker Tower down in, in Portsmouth. So, you know, that must give you a real kind of, it, it must be really satisfying to have that kind of variety of portfolio of the attractions that you work with. It is. It's uh, no two days are the same. I think the, the, the things I love most about this role is that I'm working with all the different destination marketing organisations across the UK and they all come with different challenges. So to be part of that agenda and, and, and look and, and then the ability to take the learnings from each of the DMOs and apply them to others where, you know, where successes have happened is really great. 
But yeah, the diversity, what that diversity has allowed us to do over the years is, you know, when one of the businesses isn't performing, others are because they're spread in different cities. You know, if one city's having a bad time, then other parts of the country tend to be doing well. We've got an outdoor attraction in Wales. So, you know, sunny days are great for that. Whereas, you know, rainy days are better for some of our indoor attractions. So it's really allowed us to spread the risk and the load, both geographically and in terms of product as well. So that's great. And then, yeah, the diversity of each of the attractions is is really lovely. We go from, you know, an outdoor adventure park in North Wales to, like you said, York's Chocolate Story in York. But the thing I love about them is that they all have purpose. They're all brands with purpose. They're not manufactured. Um, they celebrate either the history and heritage of the city that they that they reside or they tell a story. Um, you know, even somewhere like Greenwood was built because uh, Steve Bristow, who, who was the original owner, wanted to conserve the environment and 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 educate children about nature and the park is still run with very strong green credentials uh, we harvest our own rainwater the roller coasters people as people powered um, so the authenticity of each of our attractions uh, means a lot to me and I think especially now as consumers are becoming more savvy they're looking to engage with brands that do have purpose yeah I mean, you've just talked so, you know, passionately about those attractions. You can see, see, see the smile on your face as you were talking about them. I, I guess today I really want to look at, you know, the road ahead for, for the attractions and what it means now they're opening. But I guess to do that, we've got to go backwards. So I wondered if you could share what it was like hearing the news that all those places that you love are suddenly going to have to close and, and no idea when they're going to reopen again. Yeah, I mean... Fortunately, we'd we'd got well ahead of the curve, and I hate that turn of phrase. Not fine. Um, <laughs> we we were ahead of the game, if you like, in that we would been planning for it from probably February. We've been talking about it within our business of what if, what if, what if, and monitoring it daily. But then when that kind of Wednesday was it Wednesday or Friday came, uh, it was devastating to know that we were going to have to shut them down and it's something that's never happened before we've never been in that position where we're closing our attractions indefinitely so yeah it was devastating and fortunately the furlough scheme was an absolute godsend in that you know we didn't have to make those mass redundancies at that point but yeah to see these places that are full of fun and entertainment and are so dynamic to close their doors was was really tough yeah. really tough yeah I can imagine I mean we've seen it with our own clients yeah we immediately immediately went into right what's the plan to reopen so you know there was no woe was us this is devastating this is awful we were really proactive about saying when are we likely to reopen and we pretty much modeled to reopen on the 29th of June and we were what, a week out so right. um throughout those three months three to four months we were full steam ahead on you know daily we, we we put in um plans as a management team so there's five of us on the leadership team and we we spend an hour every lunchtime 12 to 1 every day via zoom talking to each other um and i think that was really useful in keeping abreast of what was happening and and planning daily changing our minds daily moving forward daily um to get us to a point where we could open our doors 
Brilliant. I'm so glad that you're all open. It's really <laughs> good to see it. It's such a positive thing for the industry. What yeah. about, um, I mean, obviously there was so much work to do whilst you were closed in terms of planning for reopening. That's a, that's a huge task in itself. But how have you approached marketing the attractions throughout that time? And maybe like, how did you kind of keep in touch with your existing audience? Because I'm sure you've got incredibly loyal fans that, that come back over, over and over again. We have. Um, we Our repeat visit market is quite low, actually. We are very much um, day trip, you know, we, we reside in places where it's a day trip market or a holiday market. So we don't get huge amounts of repeat visitors. But because our subject matter is really rich, we do have a loyal social um, engagement uh, or following. Um, we, we planned really early, before we closed, I've got all the marketeers around and said, right, okay, guys, what does three months worth of content look like? Um, and we got uh, captured a lot of it up front. Uh, we did a lot of scheduling before the guys all went into furlough. So we had this constant drip of two or three engagements every week across all the, all the portfolio that were either, you know, entertaining or enriching or told a, a fact or story about the attraction that you might not know. And some of it was just for fun as well. Um, so we kept that, that momentum going, which I think's done us really well. It stood us in really good stead. Um, we were also really you know, keen to talk to the media about what it means to close, what it means, what, what, re what reopening looks like, what safety measures we're putting in place to reopen. So there's the B2B side of it and the B2C side. And then, all along, we've you know we've had to review our marketing budgets. What do they look like moving forward, and how do we get really cost effectively in front of people in in the short term? Because it is going to be short term. We've got six weeks to really capitalise on 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 volume um, before we go back into a shoulder season. And my strategy has been, how do we do it most cost effectively? Let's look at our social channels. Let's get those back up and act or, or, or boosting a lot of that activity. We've had really great success with PPC um, and digital retargeting as well as basket abandonment activity. So our digital is performing really well for us. Um, we made sure we went through our websites and made sure they were fit for purpose and that the, the user experience on them was really easy as well. And we've also engaged a lot with OTAs. I don't want to use discounting platforms because I think long, whilst it might be a quick fix and a sticking plaster, I think in the long term, it's not where we need to be. I think we need to just get through this season. So very much looked at the online ticket agents who can reach mass market for us at a, you know, a percentage. That's not going to cost us anything other than a little bit on the yield. So really utilizing those to, to good effect as well as PR, um, but in terms of traditional type advertising, I think that's going to be on the back burner till next year. Yeah, for sure. It's difficult, mm. isn't it? I guess, you know, with that, the kind of capped capacity that, you, that you'll have and that almost that level of uncertainty still about how how nervous people are about coming mm. back to indoor attractions specifically. I mean, we've sure. seen like huge demand for outdoor like zoos and wildlife parks, but with the indoor, there is still that. I think the BVA, BDRC are... Um, They've been doing a weekly um, tracking uh, report, tracking the consumer um, sentiment of the impact of COVID. And I think despite it says, despite the indoor attractions being able to open, there's still an average lead time of around about four months, which seems mm. huge. And like you say, that then takes you into, you know, your slightly quieter season. So you can't really yeah. get the impact that you need. What's the uptake of some of the attractions been so far? Have you been have you been pleased with what you've seen? 
I've been, I was really pleasantly surprised to see York's Chocolate Story perform really well um, over Saturday and Sunday. Um, what we've seen is that the booking lead time is a lot shorter than we've seen ever. Um, obviously, people are making decisions, you know, the day before or even on the morning um, to, come, to come and visit us. I was pleasantly surprised to see the numbers coming through the door and also the available spend in the retail area. Um, you know, the spend per head was above where we, we expected it to be, which was really pleasing. The most pleasing thing for me was that everybody enjoyed their experience. So they came and they felt looked after. They knew we had the right safety measures in place. So whilst the attraction has been sanitized, the experience hasn't um, and there's still a richness to the experience. They're still able to engage with that story and take something away from it and be entertained and have some fun. And gosh, we've not had that ability other than tuning into Netflix for the last four months. <laughs> um, and, and I think the thing that we do really well is we tell a really good story. But that rare commodity of it being told by a human being, that, that human interaction that we deliver across all of our attractions, I think is really rare as we move into an ever more digital landscape. So I think people have really enjoyed that. And who doesn't love chocolate? So um, that was all, that's always a win. Um, Oxford Castle and Prison have done okay, uh, as have Spinnaker Tower and the two non-UK sites. So Greenwood in Wales and Merry Kings in Scotland will open on the 18th. They're a little bit behind. So we'll wait and see what they bring as well. But I'm optimistic. I think there is a demand. I think people are looking to get out of the house and do things. And I think we have delivered a experience that is still that is manageable and controlled within this this landscape that we find ourselves in it's really positive to hear i love that mm. phrase that you used as well i've heard that a few times recently about sanitizing the site but not the experience so i think you're so right and the feedback that you'll be getting now and the, and the kind of testimonials that you'll be getting now from the visitors that's the important thing that's mm. what, that's what really matters and that's what's going to drive more people to come mm. you talked a little bit about digital there did you have to implement anything prior to opening that you didn't already have in place yeah so we've oh god I mean we were you know our summer periods a lot of our attractions run at capacity so we've had to rebuild all of our ticketing system all of our back end to reflect the opening times and also the time slots so rather than running every 15 minutes we you know we're running every half hour so there's a lot of lot of infrastructure build that had to go on behind the scenes um the websites needed adjusting etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's been it really other than a lot of hard work going on with our operations team at attraction level to make sure that, you know, we spent a long time looking at how we could make this work. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Does the experience still feel rich enough? Is it still good enough if we do this, this and the other? Well, actually, if we go too far in that direction, that really does take a little bit away from it. So let's bring it back. And then we had our audits last week and the week before, um, and they came out really well. We didn't think we'd be able to do the lolly chocolate making that you do at your chocolate story, but actually the auditors said that that be okay so that's a great right. bit of the product that we could put back in so i think operationally we've done a lot digitally other than a lot of just annoying administration of having to rebuild stuff <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I hear your pain i've been on the build yeah. side so yeah i know yeah i know exactly how you feel it's just it's just been so much work all round for everybody 
and we have asked people to pre-book in advance as well that just makes our lives easier both operationally but also we you know we know what we're dealing with rather than just people walking across the streets do you think that's something that you'll continue as well i mean i don't i don't know i don't know we do a lot of our attractions do rely on on walk-up trade if you look at spinnaker tower it's the biggest advert it could possibly be um this huge tower kind of coming out the landscape of the south coast so to say that we're not going to take walk-ups I think would cut a huge huge amount of our market especially again places like Edinburgh where it's a wandering city and people are looking for things to do and they happen upon us I'd hate to be turning people away so no I don't think we'll get to that point I think we will we'll still open our doors and welcome people in with open arms yeah so we saw you speak um last year at the annual national conference of visitor attractions last October it's brilliant you talked a lot about the subject of marketing segmentation and I think one of the takeaways, one of the quotes was the demographics are no longer as reliable as the boundaries between them are blurring. And I, I really appreciated your talk because sometimes kind of you, you get put in a box and I sometimes don't necessarily fit that box. You know, I'm a 40 year old woman actually don't have children. So where, you know, where do I kind of fit when it comes to attractions? And it really stuck in my head. How have you implemented your segmentation so that it's not demographic driven? And is this something that is going to have to change post-COVID? Yeah, it's a really good question, um, and which I've thought a lot about recently. We use our segmentation across all areas of the business. So not I was really keen when we brought this in that it wasn't just a marketing tool, but actually we used it in our business planning. We used it in our buying uh, for, for retail. We used it in our offer for F&B. And, and like I said, the business planning process in terms of product development as well. And I was also determined that we weren't going to put people into box. So you are a 40-something person, therefore you'll be married, and therefore you'll have 2.4 children, and you'll probably have about this much disposable income. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I was more interested in people's motivations and behaviours. So what's motivating them to leave the house? How do they want to spend their leisure time? And boxing people up in that way rather than, you know, your ex-age female from blah therefore this is what this all means actually age and the way people behave is blurring and therefore what I was really interested in is people's motivations and behaviors for wanting to leave the house and spend their leisure time and the research that we did was really interesting Um, you know it talked about the main motivator for leaving the house and then how we segmented that up into different sections so how do we use it we use it really well especially with somewhere like and I'll use York's chocolate story again by way of example in that we have this beautiful product that tells this beautiful story that celebrates the history and heritage of confectionery and chocolate baking in York. And actually, the way that we sell that to different people is really interesting. So it's great for a family market in that we can sell it as there's enrichment for your children. It'll be fun for all the family. You can take part in the fun with your children rather than having to be the fun maker, if you like. Uh, But also similarly for a couple, no matter what age that might be on holiday in York, it's a great uh, way to spend an hour learning about the city that you're in. And then our kind of contemporary socialite uh, segment that we use is kind of people that are looking for the unique so that they can then own that story and go and tell it themselves. So 
we've used it really cleverly about hitting different markets and telling different stories and spins on very much the same product. What ultimately what they want to take away from that experience. I love that. Um, it's so refreshing to see this approach. I've not experienced that with any other kind of people that I've been speaking to about this this topic. And we do tend to pigeonhole. Um, and I said, I was just determined, you know, I, I fit very much into two different of our segments. I've got two wonderful stepchildren. So with my family head on, I fit very much into this segment. My motivation is how do we all go and have fun as a family? And I'm determined that they have, that they engage with quality products and that they they learn something. Yeah. So they're not just filling their faces full of sugar and, you know, going mad for a few hours but then also when we don't have them um i very much fall into one of our very different segments which is that contemporary socialite one that looks at i want unique i'm looking for the adventure i'm looking for something different i don't mind paying a little bit more for something that's really different so i find myself switching between (laughs) the two but again it's not about the fact that i'm a 39 year old woman that does this this and this it's what's my motivation for leaving the house today um I think that's that's been the difference and we've seen some really good success off the back of it it feels like that that won't change post-covid then because that's kind of that's the strategy that you work with we've almost put this kind of oh I've been looking at kind of putting this veil over the top of our segments which is the covid veil and what does that mean to each of our segments at the minute well some of them will be more resilient to others Others will be, uh, you know, a little more uncertain about leaving the house. Um, I was looking at some data the other day that says millennials are going to be the most resilient. They've lived through a recession. They are the, you know, and I'm going to use younger, um, but the younger demographic, they're just in their attitudes and behaviors are more resilient to things than perhaps, you know, um, a different segment. So we've looked at that in terms of our marketing and thought, right, how do we get in front of these guys? How do we show them that we can still have a really great time? Um, so I've kind of just overlaid our segmentation and our marketing with tissue paper that I hope we'll be able to whip away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this vision in my head of this COVID cloak, which is like gray yeah. and miserable, like covering everything. And soon we'll be able to tear it apart. Tear it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this. So, so what does the next kind of few months look like? Your question is, what does it look like for the future of attractions? It's a, it's a big question and a, a tough one to answer. Sure. I mean, there's, there's something that we've been wrestling with recently, which is, you know, we've had to limit the amount of people that we can put through our attraction. So there's going to be limited supply. What does that mean for demand? You know, you look at basic economics where, you know, how do those things pan out? We've made a really conscious decision to hold our price we haven't discounted our attractions because we know their quality we know we offer a great experience it is costing us more to operate than at the minute but there is limited demand so hopefully you know when people start moving around again in the next six weeks when the summer holidays come um, we'll see people coming through our doors and I, I do believe that people will start moving around as soon as the summer holidays break uh, you've just got to look at booking trends for, you know, some of the big holiday areas and, and what we're seeing in influx, uh, especially to places like North Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, etc. So I'm hopeful that we will be able to capitalise um, as much as we can during the next six weeks. We've got experiences that can operate pretty safely and pretty COVID compliant. Um, and I think we've, we've proved that over the last weekend. So fingers crossed, um, we see we see people returning to us over the next six weeks. And then as we go back into that shoulder season of September and the beginning of October, 
we're really going to have to look at the days in which we're operating, I think, and see whether we can still operate seven days a week, whether we need to cut that down. Mm. Uh, next big opportunity will be uh, October half term and then our Christmas offering, quiet January, February, and then I'm hoping we're back to somewhere near, you know, at least 70, 80% yeah. of our normal operating by next Easter. That feels about that's right, what, doesn't it? That's what I'm really holding out for. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to see what happens with the international market over the summer, but also over the autumn as well. You know, if things aren't as bad and people are flying and they've missed out on their summer holidays, will there be an opportunity for long weekend breaks during the September time? So I'm really interested to see what happens then. Um, but and in consumer confidence as soon as people start flying again you know it'll naturally snowball if it goes well so we'll see what happens there uh, we took a lot of learnings from retail when they first started opening and watched that really carefully to see how they were operating how consumers were behaving um etc so um the international market will be an interesting one and you know i hope hope we start to recover but also the opportunities around staycation we do our, our attractions do well during staycation we're at that really lovely price point we're not expensive we're a really lovely treat type experience for an hour or two at a really great price point so we tend to do well during times of recession and and during you know a boom in the staycation market good sounds like there's lots of positives coming i feel like I we're on the so. cusp of it we're coming to the end of the podcast and um, I always like to ask our guests if there's a book that they'd recommend that's helped shape their career in any way so have you got a recommendation for us I've got two Um, there's always two sorry look I give these away as gifts and I keep (laughs) you all keep blowing my marketing budget (laughs) I've got two Uh, okay first book I read the innocent smoothie books years ago years and years ago and I was completely inspired by these three chaps and their entrepreneurial style and how they set the tone of the way that brands spoke to consumers and I can remember being just hugely inspired by them and also the culture of the business that they that they set and I can remember thinking I want to work in a business with that kind of culture that's entrepreneurial that's fun that's not frightened to take risks that's happy to push the boundaries a little bit um, and I think that really set the tone for what I was looking for in the workplace and I've, I've chased that all of my career I think so that really shaped what I was looking for and the way that I think the way that I the culture that that I try and set within the marketing communities that I work in um we're never fighting to take risks uh, and I think that's something that my, my guys will hear all the time let's try it let's see what happens what's worse that can happen exactly um yeah 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 and if we get it wrong what do we learn for it from it and that's probably worth more valuable to us than you know spending money on huge amounts of data and insights so um that really set that set a, a cultural tone for me And then I read a couple of years ago a book called Turn the Ship Around by Captain David Marquette, who was a US submarine captain who was given a submarine to mobilize within three months and didn't know how to work it. And he had to very much rely and put his trust in his team to get them to a position where they could become shipworthy and or could set sail. And again, about culture, I'm all about people and culture. 
the the way he went about doing that and really putting his trust into his team has inspired me as well. That's a great, that is a great book choice. And I've not read that one as well. So that's going to go top of my list. If you would like to win a copy of these books, then head over to our Twitter account, skip the queue. And if you retweet this episode announcement with the comment, I want Jules books, then you'll be in with a chance of winning them. Jules, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think there are many good things just about to happen. And um, it's been really lovely for you to come on and talk about the things that you've been doing and talk really openly and positively and share your experiences. So thank you so much. No, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.